Now, once upon a time, in a faraway land, there was a young man who was poor and living on the streets, and he came across this magic lamp. And he by chance rubbed up against it, and out appeared from it this great and powerful genie. And the genie promised the young man to grant any three wishes he asked. While eager to test the genie's limits, the young man first asked for great wealth. And poof, suddenly he was dressed in the finest robes and his little shack was transformed into this great palace. And next, the man asked for power. And immediately he was transformed into a prince of great status and authority. And now, with his great wealth and his power, the young man became hopeful that he might be able to catch the eye of the princess, who he had always been quite smitten with. He thought surely now he might might be able to gain an audience with the princess and have the chance to win her heart. He saved that third and final wish with the hope that she might actually fall in love. And then, of course, he would wish the two of them to live happily ever after, as every good fairy tale, of course, is supposed to end. And, you know, as luck would have it, the princess was instantly drawn to the young prince, but yet she kept herself guarded as well. He tried long and hard, everything he could, to make the princess fall more in love, but yet she wasn't willing to give her whole heart to him. You see, there was something off, and she just kind of felt it. She felt she had this strange suspicion that the prince before her was not exactly the man that he appeared to be. Finally, after months with the princess, he got so bold as to ask her, why is it that you won't give me your whole heart? Well, because, the princess said, I I fear that you're not exactly who you seem to be. Show me your true self, and then maybe I can love you for who you really are. Well, what was the young man to do? (laughs) Because... He knew that without his wealth and his power, well, he would never be deserving of such a princess. And how foolish people would think him to be if he were to throw it all away. And yet he thought to himself, but, but what is the point without love? And so in the presence of the princess, he grabbed that magic lamp and he made his final wish. I wish to give away all of my wealth and my power and return to the man that I was before. The princess was startled by such a revelation, but also astonished that the young man would give away so much in order to win her heart. And so as you probably guess, well, the princess, she fell wildly in love and of course, They lived happily ever after. The storyline is a familiar tale 
Because everyone gets drawn to a story where great sacrifice is made. It inspires us to to risk for the sake of love and to give courageously to others. The Bible describes this way of living, this way of living even in our everyday lives as living generous lives. To live in such a way that we're not held back by concerns over just ourselves, but where we instead are motivated to love by freely giving those things that are maybe of value to us. So I want to give us just a quick definition of generosity. Now, this is just simply my own definition, but it is this, to sacrifice something of value for the good of another in order to express love to them. And the reason that generosity is so important in our lives is because nothing has the power to change a person's heart, or even our own, quite like generosity. It's one of the key ingredients to becoming the kind of people that we would likely probably all say that we would like to become. In fact, we naturally all do this, this sort of, this time of year, right? We look back on the person that we were or maybe the things that we did over the last year and we begin to look forward to to maybe things that we would like to be different. For many of us, Well, we will decide on some resolutions, right? And then just simply pray for the strength to carry them out for more than just a couple of weeks. (laughs) But may I propose that if we desire to be happier, more fulfilled, more loving people in the year to come, that the most important resolution we could possibly make is probably to become more generous in our lives. Now, when we speak of generosity, we will normally talk about it in terms of money. And that certainly can make a lot of people a little bit uncomfortable, right? It's actually even, I would say, a bit of an awkward subject to speak about in church Because we probably all have some experiences, maybe in the past, that have left us a little jaded. Or maybe you've watched the televangelists on TV. And so you get a little skeptical. And when the Bible speaks of generosity, many times, truthfully, it is speaking about how we handle our money. And it's simply because money is something that is all of value to us. It's sort of this universal thing that we can all relate to, and so the Bible will speak to it often about what we value. But yet generosity is also meant to encompass our whole life. We're to be generous with such things as our time, or maybe some talents that you have, some skills, We could be generous with words, for example. 
Certainly, if we're followers of Jesus, we can say that we should be generous with forgiveness. These are all things that God wants us to hold on loosely to in life. Rather than just sort of kind of hoarding those things all to ourselves. Because he doesn't want us to fear what we have to lose. But instead, he wants us to see what it is that we have to gain by being generous people. And so if you're taking notes along with me, one of the most important functions of generosity is that it determines where we place our trust. If you got your Bibles this morning, you can turn real quick to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 17, some words, sort of some closing words that Paul would write. If you don't have your Bibles, you can just read along with us. Paul says this, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. See, the temptation is always to believe that we are more if we have more. And Paul is pointing out that that's really kind of some silly logic. I mean, for example, just because you may become wealthy in this short lifetime, well, it doesn't mean anything for your eternity. I mean, when you get to the end of your life, what is it all going to matter? In fact, maybe you've heard the saying before that you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And isn't it odd that we think of acquiring money or wealth as being such a safe bet. You see, Paul is saying uh, that's a complete gamble. It's so unreliable. And the only sure bet is to place our trust in God. It's like one man who was living in Alabama that on one of those hot humid summer days. Maybe some of you have experienced that before in the South. He stopped by his friend's watermelon stand, and he picked out a smaller one just to enjoy by himself. And so he asked, how much will this one cost? And his friend said, well, that's just going to be a dollar ten. And so he dug around in his pockets, and he only found one bill. And he said, well, all I have is this dollar. And his friend said, well, no problem. I'll trust you for it. Oh, well, that's mighty nice of you, he said. And so he took his watermelon and he began to head outside. His friend said, whoa, 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 well, where are you going? He said, well, I'm going outside to eat my watermelon. His friend said, well, you forgot to give me the dollar. Well, you said that you were going to trust me for it, he called back. He said, well, yeah, but you had the dollar, so I meant that I was going to trust you for the dime. Oh, and he walked right back in there, and he said, well, then, you weren't going to trust me at all. You were just taking a 10-cent gamble on if I'm trustworthy. And it's the same test 
that we get in life when it comes to our faith in God? How much are we willing to bet that God is trustworthy? As 1 Timothy says, that he will richly give us all we need. See, this is actually the reason why God in the Bible will tell his people to give a tithe. He, he was asking them to sort of bet on him. Now here we um, will often just refer to the tithe as the offering. You'll hear us say that quite often. And the principle behind the offering or the tithe is not just so that the church has some operating money. <laughs> I mean, that's nice. But the real principle behind it is that we're sacrificing what we tend to place so much trust in. And we're giving it to God in order to keep our trust in him. It's to be this constant reminder that God is to be our ultimate provider. I mean, it's not like God ever really needs our money. Technically, everything is already his anyhow. God's never limited also by what we may give. So it's not ever about what God wants from us. Generosity instead is always about what God wants for us. It determines where we're placing our trust. And you see, just like that prince, well, we must determine that what we're giving up is really going to be worth it. In Mark chapter 12, there's a great story where Jesus is watching these people as they're going up and they're placing their money in the offering boxes at the temple. And there you can follow along in verse 41. It says that Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and he watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people gave large amounts. Now the boxes at the temple were probably just a little bit prettier than ours. They weren't wooden in fact, they were metal, and they would form the base of kind of like these trumpet sort of things, and it would have a long neck, and it would go up, and it would have a small opening at the top there, and that is where you would place your money in. There were 13 of them around the temple, and each one would have had its own little plaque that would have said what this offering was going to be used for. So one might say, wood for the sacrifices, or incense for burning. And when you would place your coins in the top, they would fall to the bottom. And you can imagine the sounds that it would make on the metal. Clank, 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 clank. I mean, you can imagine if we were to use those here, Oh man, I'd stop dropping in checks and dollars. 
I mean, I'd be cashing that all into coins because you could actually hear the money being given. And I would go and I would give my offering and it may all be in pennies and nickels, but boy, by the sound of it, you would think, oh man, that Brent, he sure is a generous guy. Yeah. You see, you could hear the clanking of the rich people giving their offering. Oh, and it always sounded so impressive. And then in verse 42, it says that there was a poor widow that came and she dropped in two small coins. <coughs> clank, clank. And Jesus called his disciples to him. And he said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. See, Jesus is making sure that his followers understand that generosity can never be measured by an amount. It's never a number. It can only be measured by cost. And she was giving what was a great cost for her to give in order to demonstrate that her, she was going to place more trust in God than she was in this money. Now, just as a side note, because some people will often sort of get distracted from the principle here. Keep in mind that Jesus' sort of simple observation here isn't necessarily a directive. So Jesus doesn't tell us, boy, this lady gave everything she had to live on. So God's only going to be pleased with us if we are to do the same. It's not exactly what Jesus is saying, and it actually sort of defies the principle here. That again, it's not about the amount. And Jesus is also not saying that to give out of your surplus, as so many of them were doing, is an evil thing. We know that that's not true. I mean, anytime something is given, it's actually able to be a great thing. It's actually able to become a great blessing. Jesus is just simply allowing his followers to know, to understand that it won't really begin to affect the generosity of our hearts unless it begins to cost us something at times. When we begin to feel that so that sometimes it becomes tough to let go. Because otherwise, we're only just sort of keeping that trust with ourselves. And so the most immediate application a lot of times is going to be money, just simply because it is what we so often tend to value. But yet generosity, the, the principle of it, really works for our whole lives. To be generous with my time means that I'm going to value more of what God may want to do through me in another person's life 
than what I can just simply do for myself, maybe. Or to be generous with forgiveness means that I'm going to trust God to determine justice and fairness rather than seeking that for myself. It places trust in God, which is, of course, what God asks all of us to do for those of us who have a relationship with him. It allows us to go even deeper and deeper in relationship the more we trust And generosity also acts as a key to experiencing life really the way that God means it to be experienced, I think. Because number two, it moves us towards transformation. In your Bibles, if you're still with me, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18 now, Paul will go on. And he says, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Paul is speaking of generosity as building something towards their future. You see, it's not meant to be a fad or to simply be over and done with. Kind of like how all the health professionals will tell us that limiting our daily calories or eating foods without any taste isn't just supposed to be a diet that we're on, right? It's supposed to be a lifestyle, they say. And of course, many of us will rebel after we complete those diets because we don't want to imagine a future without carbs and sugar. But Paul, what he does in all the letters that he'll write throughout the Bible there is he will reassure us of the potential that we have with God. He will assure us that our future is always better when we're allowing ourselves to be transformed by God. And one of the greatest ways in which we can do this is, of course, developing a generous lifestyle. Because we are most like God when we give. Now, think about that. That's a pretty profound thought that we are most like God when we give. You see, our generosity becomes a reflection of God's own love, selflessness, his sacrifice. And sometimes when we might find ourselves sort of missing out on these characteristics in life, we may have Jesus in sight, but yet maybe we haven't quite been experiencing life with him. Because the more we experience him, the better reflection we become of him. The more willing we become to, we become to sacrifice what we value for the sake of loving others. Or maybe it's growing more in trust with God. 
think that sometimes we have to be a little careful to not become like spiritual RVers. Now, I know that some of you may have an RV or a motorhome, and so I mean no offense to you because uh, you very, may very well be genuine in your pursuit of the great outdoors. <laughs> but there are, however, those who only wish to experience nature through the comfort of their small apartment on wheels. And so I came up with this uh, little picture here, and maybe you can relate to it a little bit. The guy says, the air conditioning is so nice in here. And she says, yeah, I just love camping. <laughs> now, I won't ask anyone to confess this sin this morning. I suppose some of you with this camping struggle, you know, probably aren't even remorseful about it. But you should know that you're destroying the spirit of camping. <laughs> because real camping is becoming one with nature, right? And it is foregoing the normal luxuries of home. It's sleeping in sleeping bags, people. It's cooking over an open fire. You know, taking a bath in the ice-cold river. That's real camping. And the irony can be that we can buy a motorhome with the hope of experiencing new places or new surroundings, but yet only just carry along our old setting with us. And so then it becomes possible to really miss out on what was meant to be experienced. And if we're trying to live the Christian life, without also living a generous life, I think that we're missing out on what God really meant us to be experiencing. You see, he meant us to be generous with our things and also towards others so that we would begin to live for something greater than just ourselves. In fact, we will constantly see this with Jesus. He would always, so many times, give up his comforts. He, he would even give up his rights for the bigger picture of playing his part in God's redemptive plan for people. It reminds us that God never asks us to be generous in a way that he has not been generous first. For God is the first and most generous giver. I want to take you real quick to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. It'll be up on screen also. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. Paul is writing the Corinthian church here, who is actually known to kind of have plenty. The standard of living in Corinth was pretty good. And so the people kind of enjoyed that. And Paul encourages them to be generous with what they have. And Paul had traveled around to, to all the different churches. And as he would travel around, there was this offering being taken 
for the Christians in Jerusalem who are really struggling at the time. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, Paul is sure to let them know, you're not commanded to give. There's no rule here to guilt you into anything. There's no punishment. God's not going to strike you down because, again, generosity isn't about what God wants from you. It's about what God wishes for you. And Paul here is wishing the same for this Corinthian church, for these people. And so he's going to point out that generosity is just simply the example that we have been shown through Jesus. And because of this, well, one of the easy ways in which we can, can examine how much our life reflects Christ is to look at our generosity. And so look at what he tells them next. It's a little bit of a mind game. He says, but I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. Because you see, there were some churches, as Paul would travel around, that just really stood out. I mean, they were just really alive. They were passionate. They were Christ-like. And as you can imagine, it would always reflect in their generosity that they would show with their things, with their behavior, it would outflow into their attitude towards others. Their aim became to bless rather than to hoard. And so Paul is going to say to them, man, look at the example that Jesus has given and look what they are doing with their lives because of it. He's sort of like a proud parent over them a little bit. It's kind of like when your kids surprise you maybe with uh, doing something that like some sort of selfless act and other people notice. They might even say something about it. Boy, you must have really raised him right. What a nice young man you have. You know, and as a parent, you kind of get all proud inside and you go, yeah, that's my boy. And then it tends to be a little bit of a different story when, you know, they might begin picking up on some negative things. Sometimes in my family, my wife will call my attention to it when she will say, you want to know what your son just did? <laughs> and listen, I can tell you this much, that whenever a child is claimed to be exclusively yours, then they must have picked up on some of your bad examples. And so Paul is just simply pointing out that you can tell what examples you've picked up on by what you're doing in your life. Paul's going to say to them, man, don't you remember the example of Jesus? He says it in verse 9. He says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. 
God was the first and always will be the most generous giver. For the example that God gave was to give the greatest gift that could ever be given. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, because it declares the amazing generosity that God has shown us. And it's nothing that we deserved to have done on our behalf. And it's not a, a reward that God gives us in order to earn God has been so generous to us because it is just simply in his character to do so. And so when generosity then is at the core of our Christian faith, it is the very thing that our salvation depends upon if you have chosen that for yourself. Man, how could we not become a reflection by following God's example, by allowing us to be transformed in our life by what he has generously done. And the last thing we'll note about generosity this morning is that it is motivated by love. In fact, in John 3.16, before describing God's generosity, it explains his motivation, which hopefully would be ours as well. The verse begins with, For God so loved the world that he did this. And we're now able to experience, to know such love because he acted with such generous love. We see it in the early church, too. If you were to go to the book of Acts, the way that they expressed love to one another in such a generous way was so countercultural. I mean, it would have seemed weird. It would have even seemed cult cultish to that world. It was a world that was divided by races, by social and economic classes that they would live by. It was divided by genders. But yet the Christians, well, they started treating one another as if they were all completely equal, as if there were no restraints anymore on who or how they could love, on how generous they could be. And so one of the descriptions of them is found in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. And then in verse 34, it continues and says, there was no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. 
Now listen, we would consider that crazy even by today's standards. And again, the description isn't necessarily a directive, but it is an example of the amazing love that they were motivated by in order to show sort of this extreme form of generosity. I mean, never before had such an eclectic group of people done something like this, where religious leaders would sit down at the same table with those of questionable reputations, shall we say. Or maybe the lower working class people, forgiving people such as the tax collectors who had been robbing them for years. Or where the rich would rub shoulders with the poor and say, what's mine is yours now. They had built this culture of generosity. And I think it's probably fair to say that that culture of generosity probably did more to bring people to the gospel or to a relationship with Jesus than probably the actual preaching that was being done. For when we give, the world takes notice. It's because people are always moved by generosity. There's a story told about a Spanish father and his teenage son, and they had a strained relationship. And one day it got so bad that the, the young teenager decided to run away from home. And immediately the father began this journey across Spain in search of his rebellious young son. And finally, after months, and months and months of searching, he arrived in Madrid, and in the last desperate effort to find his son, the father went down to the newspaper office, and he put in an ad in the newspaper, and it simply said, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. Absolutely everything is forgiven because I love you your father. The next day at noon, 800 men named Paco showed up <laughs> in front of the newspaper office because so many are seeking that kind of generous love. The kind that isn't earned, that isn't even rational. As Paul would say to the Corinthians, it's like the generous grace that was shown to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as Christians, if you have a relationship with Jesus here this morning, we should probably know and even expect people many times to disagree with our beliefs. And they may take issue with our preaching or maybe us talking about Jesus. But it really ought to be difficult for someone to say, you know, I really take issue with how generous they are. Because people are moved. Nothing has the power 
to change a person's heart, and again, even our own, than generosity. I'm going to ask the worship band to come up. And we'll have you continue thinking about this idea of generosity, that it will affect where it is that we are placing our trust. And it will aim us towards viewing God as our ultimate provider. It will begin to transform us into being a reflection of the love, the selfishness or selflessness, and the sacrifice of God, the generosity that He has already shown us. Each week through communion, if you're regularly with us, we celebrate this generosity that God has shown us. We go and we take the elements which are at the tables in the front and in the back and we remember the selfless sacrifice, the act of generosity that God made with John 3.16 where he gave his son for our sake so that we might find a relationship with him, that our sins would be forgiven. And so we take the bread and we remember the life and the body that Jesus gave on our behalf. And we then drink the juice and we remember the blood that was spilt there on the cross for the sake of the forgiveness of our sins. And while we take just a moment to do that this morning, we'll give you a couple of minutes to do that on your own and to take it back to your seats. Would you reflect on the fact that God has been so generous to us for he has been the first and will always be the most generous giver and how much we have to celebrate because of that fact. And maybe you, even in your seats this morning, as you pause and you reflect on those two elements and you spend some time speaking or in prayer with God, might find some ways in which God might be speaking to you about how it is that you can be more generous in life. And we will look forward in this new year as we think about the possibilities, as we imagine sort of the future of what we are to do and who we are to become, what kind of effects this generous life will have on us. So let me pray, and then I'll release you to go to the tables. You can spend some time in your seats as the band just sort of quietly prays. And then we'll wrap up with one last song. Lord, thank you, God, just again for the life that we have because of the life that you gave. Thank you for being so generous to us, and we pray, God, that we might become a reflection of that because of the way that you love and because of the way, God, that we would be inspired to love others. And so, Lord, during this time of communion, Lord, as we celebrate you and the life that you give, we pray also that you would speak to us about how it is that we can become more generous people to become an even greater reflection of your character. And so, Lord, we love you. And again, we just give you this time in your name. Amen.